0: Have you made an honest review? Jump onto fifthwrist.com and read real takes by real owners about their watches. And of course, get involved and write about what's on your wrist. Fifthwrist.com is your independent space to talk watches. Hello and welcome to the Independent Thinking Show for Fifth Wrist Radio. This is a place dedicated to showcasing the great people doing interesting stuff in the world of horology. My name is Roman, and today I'm joined by my co-host and fellow watch fanatic, JP. Hey, JP. Hi, guys. And we've got a big crossover. We've got one and only Rob from Geneva Blue. Hey, Rob.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, I- I'm-, I'm well.
0: The fans have asked for you to come on my show, and, you know, you get it.
1: No, it wasn't really. I <laughs> I don't think it's a fan thing, um, but I want to just pop in, so to speak, because um, we've got another gentleman joining us here t- tonight, which is a bit of a special guest.
0: And what a show we've got. Right, do you want to introduce our special guest, Rob?
1: I will. Yeah, I just want to introduce Max Busser. Um Max is here with us. Hi, Max. Hello. Good to be here. Great
2: to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here, guys. It's a first for me.
0: What's a first for us, Max. So you're a dream guest for a lot of our listeners and us as well. well.
1: It's fantastic. We go back a little bit. We were talking about dream guests just since you say that um, a few weeks back, and I thought oh, someone mentioned Max. I thought, well, we can talk to Max. I've probably don't, I guess we've known each other for ten years, Max, since my time in Geneva. Mm-hmm. Been to plenty of events and stuff together. We've had lunch together. We've uh, discussed watchmaking, um, you know, all over the shop basically, and especially your your really cool creations. Great to have you here, anyway,
0: Max. Thank you. You can't see me, but I'm grinning. <laughs> so, looking forward. to this. Did you want to give our listeners a tiny bit of Max's bio to wow them, or should we get Max to do that?
2: I can do that. No worries. I'll, I'll give you the uh, the elevator pitch if you want. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs>
2: okay. Well, um, so I, I created MBNF uh, fifteen years ago. It's our fifteenth anniversary this year. Maximilian Busse and friends. Before that. Uh, in, a, in many previous lives, I actually uh, I actually am an engineer, which always amazes everybody. For whatever reason, people who listen to me or, or, or see me go, you can't be an engineer. I still haven't understood why. And um, and then I did seven years first at from 91 to 98, which were brilliant, extraordinary years where people would come up to me. I was the, the young product manager, basically creating products with the whole team uh, and telling me like. Young man, why would we buy a mechanical watch? There's no point. Or the famous, why would we buy that watch which turns? It reversal. So there is no market for that. And um, so I did seven years there, which were absolutely amazing. Then some crazy uh, headhunter. I don't know. I don't know what he was taking. It was a good idea to introduce me to the good people at Harry Winston, who were looking for a managing director for their timepiece operation. I was 31. Pretty much clueless and after four months of interviews they actually gave me the job <laughs> and um it was um probably the worst year of my life that was uh 98 99 where uh, i had no idea that harry winston timepieces was virtually bankrupt and that harry winston the brand a week after i signed my contract got put on sale for many reasons i don't want to delve into and um so 98 99 <laughs> was it Pretty horrible year, and um, and then while well, 2000 to 2005, we we did a good job of putting Harry Winston on the watchmaking map. That was the beginning of Opus, of course, and many other great. You know, incredible. It was it was an incredible story, and then in 2005, uh, I quit all of that, and uh, my corporate life would say, and created my little creative lab. The whole point was and is still um, to be proud and to be happy actually no when i started it it was only to be proud being happy was not actually a component in my life it was trying to be proud of myself and what i did in life and uh, and then as the as the company grew and evolved and now we're 18 calibers later 15 years later and a great fantastic team we've assembled um yeah now it's it's a balance between being proud and being happy there you go in a nutshell
0: Oh, that's that's amazing, and I think part of you know th- when you said you know people can't believe you're an engineer, I can see why because you're so creative and eloquent, and you communicate well. And I've worked with engineers; that's not a universal trait.
2: That that was me when I was twenty five years old. Uh, if you, uh, I mean, I have luckily there was no internet in those days. And I have burnt every single photos of me between the age of 12 and 25. And um, I was like the absolute dork, nerd, geek. And I say that with enormous uh, love because I was, that, I, I, I was that not very lovable uh, dork.
0: Well, you blossomed into a very good butterfly.
2: <laughs> I was a late bloomer, I think. Definitely a late bloomer. So uh, anyway, thank you very much.
0: One of the reasons that I um, wanted to, or we wanted to have you for a show, is a great show, I think your career in the watch industry really spans this fascinating period in history. I mean, I think when you started in the '90s at JLC, for example, I mean, you started with the titans of the industry who saved the industry. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think you worked with uh, Gunter Blumlein from that on, and then you went on to work with Harry Winston, kicking off the Opus series, which has really helped launch this new generation of independent watchmaking, which is kind of what I'm passionate about. And I'm sure JP, who will jump in in a sec, is passionate about as well. And I think it's a fantastic thing that you've really, that your career kind of dovetailed beautifully into this sort of new phase.
2: It's interesting. Um, I don't know if you guys read the book, The Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Yes. Yes. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, people hate him or love him, but The Outliers is an interesting book where he defines people who have been outliers, who've, who've done incredibly well in their industry compared to the others, and he boils it down to being <laughs> at the right time at the right moment uh, and working way more than everybody else. And I, I read that book uh, like, I don't know, six, seven years ago, and I was like, I have no idea if I'm an outlier because people sort of tell them sell this to me, but I was just at that right place at the right moment uh, when the industry was starting to begin again, 90s, early 90s. There was no money, no glam, no glitz, no technocrats, no influencers. Uh, it was um, it was fantastic. I feel, I feel like this, these old guys who keep on saying, oh, it was better before. But honestly, we had no money, but we had it was so much fun because... We were crazy watch lovers talking to other watch lovers, uh, and um, and so it was. Um, yeah, look, I mean Basel. I mean, if you think of Basel in those days, it was yeah, it was amazing. So it was it was really um, it was a great moment, and I was very lucky to learn in those years, as you said, with the Titans. I mean, uh, I was so lucky to work with Günther Blumline for seven years, who for me still is the greatest watch visionary leader i have seen in this industry and this industry has counted quite a lot of big guys but gunter Blumlein was incredible he was um he was i mean i was in awe i've always been in awe and he left us way 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 too
0: early yeah it was a sad sad day
3: max before we go any further what we always do on this show is we ask uh, we go around and basically do a wristwatch check and a drink check so can you tell our listeners what you are wearing on your wrist to, uh, today and what are you drinking
2: Ah, so <laughs> I am wearing um, the only MBNF I have in Dubai, which is enormous amount of frustration for me because for the last four months I've only had one of my pieces, but it's it's not any piece. It's our legacy perpetual, oh, wow. which was uh, created by the great Stephen McDonald, uh in titanium with the green uh, base plate. It's um, it's interesting because I, I've of course worn virtually every piece I've created. It's the only time I asked my team to create a number zero for me. Nice. And uh, so that piece I've had for two years, and it's my, it's my go to piece in the MBNF collection. There are many others, but that's the one. And uh, what I'm drinking, because I've become a teetotaler over the last 10 years, is a glass of Evian. <laughs>
3: Good stuff. Roman, how about you?
0: Uh, so what I've got on my wrist is I had to struggle. I knew we had Max coming and unfortunately, you know, my MBNF <laughs> is a future purchase, uh, but, but the perpetual is the one to have. I agree with you, Max. I mean, they're all amazing. Uh, what I've actually got on my wrist is a Peter Spick Marin Piccadilly, an early production piece. And the reason I pulled that out of the watch box was I know there's a bit of a connection between Peter and Max and the HM1. A long time ago, so that's the connection.
2: Oh yes, oh yes. yes. Peter is one of the the seminal people who allowed me to dream and create my own brand. I, I owe a lot to Peter.
0: He's a fantastic gentleman. Um, and I'm drinking. I'm drinking my usual, you know, gin and tonic. The size of a fish tank.
3: Very Australian of you. How about you, Rob? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned the Speak Marine because we have these uh, pieces which are very, very closely close siblings. I think Max, Peter speaks Piccadillys.
0: Yeah, within the first ten serials, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. I know Peter quite well as well and um great guy. Um we do all we can to support the indies basically. But I've gone for a a different connection. Um I've got one of Stepan's watches. He's SUF, not his Sapaniva, but the SUF. You would have seen Max. It's the one with the it's actually the one with the Mo uh, bezel. You know Mo as well.
2: Oh yeah. I love that piece. Love that
1: piece. It's a really cool piece, a small series he did, um I love Mo. I love I love Stepan. I love Carrie. You know, this is this, this bring this piece brings them all together. And um, unfortunately, since I don't have an MBF to wear either, I mean, I've not worn a few and I've, I've I've sat there for hours with LV in the in in the shop trying on different ones. But yeah, at the moment, this is as close as I can get basically. So I'm wearing my my sapp and and I'm drinking a gin and tonic as well. So I thought I'd uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right up with you. I'm mean, it's not quite fish tank size, but it's a decent size. It should keep me going for an hour or so. So. Um, yeah, that's me, basically. What about you, JP? Uh,
3: yeah, so as it is such a special occasion, I'm wearing my most special watch, which is my Alango Söhne 1815 up-down in pink gold. Beautiful. Uh, I know that uh, Max Ador's 18th, 19th century watchmaking, and I thought I'd go with uh, something very much inspired by the pocket watches of that era. And uh, as for drinks, I had to reach uh, for one of the most special bottles I currently have, and that's a Sullivan's Cove Single Malt Whiskey. It's from Tasmania limited edition double cask if you hadn't heard of them um they make some of the most amazing whiskeys on the planet winning dozens of awards over the years. so um they're quite hard to get so you have to subscribe to their newsletter and then get notified and they're sold out in five minutes so that's that's uh, that's me tonight yeah wow
0: wow now before we go any further chaps i just wanted to pause and congratulate max and MBNF on a busy and amazing year i mean Let's take the the awful coronavirus out. But you and your team have managed to have three incredible pro- projects launched this year. You've had the HM10, the Bulldog, which is amazing, and you've had the two pieces um, or t- two different projects with the with the Moser guys, which are also sort of big fans of the podcast here. So it's amazing you've managed to fit a lot in, Max. It's um, look, I, I'm. Do you say in English
2: bulimic. I think you say bulimic. Um, I've become bulimic creatively, um, also because I've taken a big step back uh, in my own company five six years ago of just being the creative director, and because I've got a fantastic team. And that as I was talking about pride and happiness, um, the happiness comes from concentrating on doing what you love, and if possible, not doing all the rest. And um, and so I've got much more time to create and uh, are driving all our engineers completely nuts. And uh, so, yeah, this is just the beginning of the year. This is what we planned originally. Of course, we, we had no idea what was going to happen in the world. And um, and so there's, mm. there's more coming at the end of the year. And then uh, without unveiling anything, 2021 is going to be the most insane year we've ever had. So people think, it's interesting, every time I come out with a new product, I will get this, someone pushing the remark, so, do you know what you're going to come out with next year? <laughs> like, sorry, do you know how long it takes from idea, <laughs> delivery of a piece like an MBNF or any high-end independent watchmaker? It is anything between three and a half to five years. So, and I'm not talking of a variation. I'm not, I'm not talking of changing a dial or changing a case metal, of course. I'm talking of a new caliber, and we've done 18 calibers in 15 years. So, if I don't know what's coming out in 2024 now, it's not coming out. <laughs> and, um, and so, yes, we've been working on all of this. We had no idea what was going to happen in the world, but that doesn't stop us. The only thing we're going to do is going to do, we're going to basically produce less, but of the same amount of crazy pieces we have in the pipeline. Um, so where we thought, oh, well, we probably – the way we work is we think, oh, maybe we could sell 50 of these. We'll do an addition of 25. Now, COVID is, okay, let's do 12. And, um, and so we're just doing the same amount of novelties, but in much smaller quantities, which, of course, economically makes no sense. But it's so much fun.
3: <laughs> Max, we touched on uh, Günther Blumlein just before. And I know that he told you once that uh, creativity is not a democratic process. When you first come up with a new design, when you first start drawing... Being an engineer by trade, do you automatically think about like the technical feasibility of things while you're designing? Or is it really just whatever you think it should look like and then figuring out how to make that happen
2: in the process? It's a mix of both. The good thing with growing old and getting experience is that you actually, um, your experience allows you your gut feeling to take you where it should go in a much faster place than when you were 25 years old. And um, which is a good thing because I'm much slower as a person. But uh, uh, the the good part is that when I create something is I've got usually 80 percent of the idea I know is technically feasible. Sometimes it'll be 55, sometimes it'll be 95 percent. There's always that that innovation that we brought into it that we've never done before, where we start thinking, hmm, how are we going to do that? But that's when the whole team comes into the play. I will do the sketch of the whole concept of what I would like, to, I mean, even take the bulldog we just came out with. When I drew it, it, I basically drew it more or less the way you see it five years after I drew it. And uh, I, I knew that more or less with all the experience we'd accumulated over the 15 years, we could do this. The, the vertical power reserve, we'd already tried on Legacy One. The, the domes of the eyes, we'd already tried on the Frog. The flying balance wheel on Legacy Machine. So. In this case, because we've experimented so much over the years, it actually goes faster. But then you will have, like take a project like Thunderdome. Thunderdome, we go in completely uncharted territories for us, that's why also we sit down with the great Eric Coudray and say, look, Eric, this is my dream. How do we make that dream go through? Because nobody in my team has any idea how to make this come to life. And there we, we go into completely uncharted territories, but he has been there. He's, he's done already 60 to 80% of that, of that um, experience. So yeah, you know, we, we will never, I, I've never come out with an idea where we, well, let's say 80% of the engineering is completely uncharted territories.
0: Mm. Uh, your creative process, I'm sort of really fascinated about, and I don't think I've ever heard you speak about it. Do you have one idea at the time? And you sort of develop it, or do you are you always sketching? You know, are you always sort of you know at the dinner table, just you know, scribbling on napkins and things. What's your you know What's your creative process like?
2: It's it's very sketchy. Uh, it's there is nothing planned, which is already I think normal when you think of creativity. You can't you can't force it. Initially, at the let's say in the first years of MBNF, everything was flowing out because I had all this pent up frustration of all the things I was dreaming of doing which were coming out, were very much linked to my childhood. As I often say, was very much my psychotherapy. But then at some <laughs> point, I started having writer's block, and I started panicking because, oh, my gosh, will, am I, am I, am I a sort of a fraud? I mean, is this it? It's like the first five HMs, and that's it? There's nothing else in me, and that's why I have to stop the brand sort of thing. And, um, and you realize that, for me at least, ideas, first of all, they come when I'm all alone. That's something I've realized in earlier. I cannot create while being in a relation with anybody, be it a computer or a person, or in a meeting. It's always when I'm completely alone. I used to create a lot in airplanes, before there was Wi-Fi on airplanes. Um, and um, and so airplanes used to be when I used to fly. And like the, now in Dubai, I'm only in the workshops like four or five days a month. I have way more time for my uh, for myself. And I try and like once or twice a week take an hour, an hour, you know, a full 60 minutes of thinking, meaning I'll sit in the garden without a phone, definitely without the phone, and nobody's allowed to talk to me. And I will just sit there for 60 minutes. I'll put the alarm (laughs) on, 60 minutes. And I will allow myself to think. When was the last time any of you guys has had 60 full minutes of thinking? I'm sure doesn't happen often.
0: Well, I have a six-year-old. That hasn't happened for at least six and a half years. <laughs>
2: so there you go. Yeah. I've, I've got a three and a seven-year-old, and, but I have, I've had to work that one out. But so there you go. Well, you've got to schedule it in. Exactly. So you schedule it in. And, and sometimes, especially when the, when the three-year-old was born, and then I would just fall asleep during that hour because I was doing the night. And um, But otherwise, uh, you just let your mind roam. And sometimes it will go to something personal, sometimes it'll go to the business, sometimes it'll go to peace. And then you will get an idea and you will pull on that string. It's like a little, like a, how do you say it, A thread. And you pull on that thread and you start creatively looking, oh, wouldn't it be like, oh, uh, Jaws. I'll watch with Jaws. Why would I do that? And how could I do Jaws? And then you start pulling that thread. And if I've got Jaws, I need eyes and and etc. etc. So things like that happen. Of course, it's not only for MBNF timepieces. Uh, look at all the clocks we've created over the last uh, six years. Um, actually, what's interesting also is um, a lot of people ask me, why do I do these clocks? It's because they are an answer to my two biggest frustrations as a watch creator. When you create watches, high-end watchmaking as we do, you know what are my two biggest challenges? And it's usually... An enormous letdown when i tell them the first one is wearability i've got a very small wrist and whatever i design has to be super comfortable on my wrist so there are sizes which i can't go to or whatever i have to have it comfortable second part which usually most people don't think of is water resistance now on a legacy machine that's not an issue but when you start going onto a horological machine with all these crazy shapes and sapphire parts, how do you make that piece water resistant? And when I could design clocks, size and water resistance are not an issue. So, actually, it it flows much easier. It's much easier for me to design clocks than it is to design watches. Really. And what what um Max, at what point does someone like Eric Giraud get
1: get involved? I mean, we you, I know Eric is is a good friend. We have he's another one of the guys we used to have lunch with and stuff. This guy is a genius when it comes to design, and and he's worked for a lot of different brands and a lot of different projects. Well, obviously, you work with him. I think most most of your machines. W- when does he get involved?
2: No, he gets involved. Um, so Eric. Uh, He's probably the only person I know today who can actually decode my ideas. <laughs> uh, so I will, I will sit down wow. with him and do a, a, a pretty bad sketch of what I have in mind. And from there, he will decode it into a 3D rendering on Rhino. Ah. And we work together on those Rhino 3D renderings because I have no idea how to use those, those softwares. And, um, yes. and then... We work a lot also by friendly competition, meaning once the the concept I, I've put mm. on the paper, and then how are we going to make I don't know the, the lugs work. And so he'll draw lugs, I'll draw lugs, and at the end we're like, oh, yours is the best idea. I'll go with yours. And so we together put the the ingredients. We we know what the recipe yep. what the what we know what the 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 the, uh, the food has to look like. <laughs> Uh, and we've got the ingredients, oh, yes. but now it's how do we mix all these ingredients to arrive to the end point. And uh, then we work a lot on 3D printing pieces. Luckily, I mean, I remember the days where anything we would design, we would have to make a metal uh, prototype where we'd, in Diego, we would file them. So you take a block of metal and you would just file the case down to get more or less to the dimensions you thought. Now, we do a 3D Rhino drawing and boom, like three days later, we've got a fantastic looking uh, 3D print, which we, we paint metallic, and we already know what it's more or less going to look like. Of course, that is also something which is complicated because it's a piece of plastic. And when you go into metal, and the way you finish it, uh, it's a polish, it's a satin finish, it's a the colors, it's completely different to a bland piece of plastic. Uh, so that, that's how we work. So... Um, that's the, that's the creative process.
3: Interesting. It's brilliant. Fascinating stuff. Thanks. Yeah, Max, you've been in the watch industry for over 25 years now, and you've lived through the sort of comeback of mechanical timepieces and a growing number of watch enthusiasts, which is in part due to the rise uh, of social media and the possibility mm-hmm. like, for the community to connect. In your experience, what are some of the positives and negatives from a brand perspective when it comes to social media
2: in the watch world? These are good questions. Um, Well, look, social media has helped all of us independents find our tribe because we live thanks to the tribe of people who who understand and love what we do. We are definitely the the antithesis of mainstream. And um, it it, it started with the Internet and with uh, um, Internet forums. I mean, we all owe a lot to purists in the old days, which was where – we started assembling and finding like-minded people. And that slowly evolved into social media. I, I don't see a downside to social media, except maybe the fact that there is a uniform uniformization of taste. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking for independence, of course, here. It was interesting is that before social media, it's going to be a bit of a cliche, I'm sorry, but it actually a Japanese would want like an ultra-thin watch a round watch uh, a middle easterner would go maybe for something a bit more blingy uh and um, i don't know in the u.s it'll be a rolex uh, and again i'm sorry in the cliches but
0: italians will go steal yes, daytonas with so. a
2: brown strap and um or, and so every market major market had their had their taste and it was really interesting because i've lived years with all these different markets wanting something different now, they all want to steal 5711. So um, is this good or bad? I don't know. But as a creator, it's, it's for me, it's it's sort of dumbing down the, the, the choices available. And it should have been a social media should be a place which opens people's minds to new ideas. And it's actually dumbed it down to everybody wanting the same thing. And I don't understand how this has happened, but it's definitely happened.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's actually great that you mentioned that because um, I heard that you mentioned that, you know, the biggest threat to the watch industry today is new buyers with, with lots of money coming into the hobby who don't really give a damn about watchmaking. Uh, who are just after you know the status of having a watch that is hard to get and the prospect of making money on it? What do you think needs to happen in the industry for that to change, to open people's eyes to more than just Rolex, Patek, and AP, for them to really look at independent brands that innovate and bring something new to the table? What what is something that brands can do, and what can the community do?
2: Hmm. Um, wow, I have this vision. It's already happened to me. Of Entering a, a dinner party with twenty people, and nineteen out of the twenty have got the same watch. <laughs> really, what I call the same watch mean a Rolex, a Nautilus, a Daytona. That's every watch get together. Uh, and and so and they're very proud of it. And, and they're great products. Don't get me wrong, they're great products. But I do think that at some point, after years of assembling and always everybody having the same watch there will be a counterculture current. It has to happen. It's always happened in the art world, in any different world over the centuries. When you've got a predominant art uh, current, which takes over and everybody's home looks the same and everybody's wrists look the same, there will be a counterculture. Independent creative watchmaking will, for me, always be the counterculture. It cannot be the culture. Because if it does become the culture, then we've lost our tribe. Uh, so um, I, I just think that it's a status of the world, and we just not try to battle it. It's the way it is. Right. And uh, and then when when I oh, I come in with my speaker in my my Vutlinen, my Orvirk, my uh, my Betune, my Sarpaneva, all these all these pieces of people I love, uh, and of course my MBNF, people look at me like, what the hell is that? And that is so enjoyable because I've got the story to tell them. And I'm going to tell you something which is incredible. We have a lot of customers who also have the right Patek and the right RM and the right AP. And they all tell me the same thing. They say, when I'm wearing one of those watches, nobody ever talks to me.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: When I wear one of yours, people come up and start striking conversations. People not even the watch industry, I mean, who are not into watches. And like, sorry, sir, but what are you wearing? What is that? And it's a lot of my clients have said, it is tough to wear one of your pieces because most people don't get it. But at the same time, it's the ultimate icebreaker because you start incredible conversations.
0: Well, that's right. And I think, I mean, what you said there is very right. What your pieces, at least in my mind, exemplify is that human connection, which the big faceless mass-produced corporations can never match.
2: Absolutely. It's
0: about, it's about humanity. Exactly, yeah, and one of the things I find fascinating and, and wonderful is your use of the word the tribe when you're talking about you know your customers or people who have your pieces in the same way that you talk about your friends as the creators of your pieces. and you know that's all over your branding and your marketing. I think that's wonderful. Thank you.
2: it's It just came naturally. It's interesting because when I created the brand and I've said that pretty often, Everybody in the industry told me it's the worst name ever for a watch brand. I can't call your brand unfriends. Yeah, I mean our first piece, HM1, was a hundred and seventy thousand US dollar central tourbillon watch. Uh, even though it was very disruptive in, in in concept and shape, it was a high-end mechanical watch. And you can't call your brand unfriends. I mean that's for Mickey Mouse brands. And um, and I just said, look, honestly, I <laughs> I would like to call it Max Busser and people who share the same values, enthusiasm, and passion uh, as as myself. But that was a that lot. of great letters. on marquee. <laughs> was a marquee. That was a lot of letters in the day. Uh, so so we ended up with friends. And um, but there is one. I've got one regret. Um, the brand was not supposed to be called MBNF. It's supposed, to, it's supposed to be called B and F. And all my first drawings uh, of everything I've kept, was I had B and F on my dials. Why did it become MB and F? It's because when I finally had the courage, while well, I was still working in Harry Winston, to go and register the brand name, the IP attorneys looked at me and said, no way, Jose, this is not going to fly. I was like, why? It's Bell and Ross. Because Bell and Ross had registered B and R everywhere in the world, and it's a watch brand. So you arrive with B and F, with a watch brand, they're gonna they're gonna have you for lunch. And um, and so I was like, oh, of course, damn. And so I had to add the M, which is something I, I I just I don't like. It was not supposed to be that way. It was supposed to be B and F.
0: And are you trying to remove the M do you not like it because you know of some sort of calvinist injection of your own ego into it or is it just you think aesthetically it's not as pleasing as BNF um,
2: the first point I it it sort of gives the impression that MB is more important than the friends because they're two letters so it gives more focus on me and I am just the guy who has the ideas all the other people around me were 35 40 45 engineers, artisans, uh, watchmakers transform that into reality. And I just didn't want it that way. And um, so it just, it feels as if it puts too much focus on me. And as I, I just posted on my last post, I know if you saw on my Instagram, is like many people have been telling me over the years that I have to stop being that friggin' Calvinista,
0: which I am. Yeah, um, that was my yeah, comment. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't escape it. I, I just can't escape it. Fascinating, uh, fascinating. Uh, one of the questions I had was, You know, if you think about your projects or when you approach, you know, your your creations, is each project a standalone project? kind of idea or in your mind, are you building up to, you know, sort of an arc of creation in a sense, you know, are you building to a, you know, to use a term like a legacy, you know, to use a pun on your own creations, you know, is each project a standalone or is there a legacy being developed and you could see 10 projects ahead that this is where we end up with the legacy machines or with the horological machines or...
2: Um I may disappoint, but there is no end game. <laughs> Meaning, when I when I create I, an idea, just pops into my head. And I, I just brought on um, for the first time in our fifteen years. I brought on a consultant at the beginning of the year to help us. And that's the, one of the first things he told me. is like, once he'd understood how we develop products, he's like, this is totally senseless. This doesn't make any sense. You just come in in the morning and say, guys, let's do this. Nobody looks where it fits in the rest of your range, where it fits in the watchmaking world, are you going to make any money or not? Uh, you, you don't care. And I'm like, of course I don't care. That's not the point. The point is me being free to create whatever I want. Now, it's, it's a very spoiled kid attitude, but this is what brought us where we are. And because we have no plans, that's why it's interesting uh, and that's why there is no. You, I don't think you can decode in our eighteen caliber story. Uh, 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 how do you say a rouge? You say in French a uh, red line. Uh, I mean, uh, connecting thread. thread yeah. Exactly, connecting thread. I don't think that. May, yes, there is a connecting thread. It's me, and I'm sorry to talk about me, but it's it's about that, that's the DNA. And I I remember I used to go really nuts after I think it was like after HM one two three and four or four. Completely different products. And I was so proud of that because for me, I was going to be the only brand where there is no brand DNA. I was part of the basis of when I created uh, MBNF was like, no more of all this. Oh, we're going to create a line and make it work. And um, so I was very proud that all four pieces were completely different. And people would come up to me and go, oh, it's so coherent. <laughs> I was like uh. They were committed as a compliment. and I was like super upset. It's like, what do you mean it's coherent? <laughs> it should not be coherent. This is absolute free thinking, but you can't escape yourself. I can't escape who I am. At the same time, if I look at my HM1 today, and God knows I put so much of myself into that piece, and it was was probably one of the two, three most difficult creations for me uh, because it was my first. Um, If I look at it today, 15 years later, I would never, ever create that piece today. I look at it as if it's an alien going, you actually did that i'm super proud of it don't get me wrong but the man i have today the man who's already created those 18 calibers and the next seven by the way that's 25 doesn't want to do that again that 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 was that was that was then so there is no brand building exercise in the creative process
0: it's fascinating because one of the things i also enjoy so Independent watchmakers are my passion, independent watchmaking. Another passion of mine is sort of modern art. And there's this theory in modern art by uh, this economist, David Gellinson, about the two different types of artists that exist. You know, there's the conceptual innovators who, you know, arrive young, bursting with ideas. You know, somebody like Picasso, for example, you know, knows exactly what he's trying to do. He brings a canvas out and it's, you know, the idea is there. That's a sort of this conceptual innovator, which is kind of how I see you as you're talking about it versus somebody else who's sort of more of an experimental innovator, you know, a tinkerer who sort of tinkers, is never satisfied, you never, doesn't quite know what they're trying to say. Whereas what it sounds to me like is that, you know, you've got this idea, you've got the concept, and it sort of comes out more or less formed, which then, you know, you build up into a 3D sculpture, but you've got that really strong idea. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's fantastic.
2: But I'll give you, I'll give you a, an, um, two ways of, of creating. Look at my good friends Felix and Martin at Orwerk. When I look at Orwerk they're, they're 20 years of creativity or more than that. For me, they are like the, the Japanese katana swords uh, creators. They are perfecting an idea. Mm. And from time to time, they go completely bananas and create an EMC or an AMC. But uh, it's, it's, it's one idea that they've been working on for 20 years and trying to improve on it. That's how I see it. Maybe they'll, they'll hate me for saying that. Maybe they don't see it that way. But that's how I see it. On my side, once something has been created, I don't want to do it again. I don't want to. I will perfect it if I think, oh, maybe we could do one or two iterations which are better. But then That's it. It's finished, and um, and so I, as a creator, I get pride from taking risks. Taking risks means getting out of your comfort zone, which means not doing the same thing, not improving, improving is not interesting for me, which becomes complicated because after 25 creations, um. You start thinking, am I still going to be able to create something and get out of my comfort zone and do something which I am proud of? I don't care if it sells. I'm sorry to say that. But I, I care that I am proud because I've done something I've never dared do before. And that's how you can define the creative process at, at MBNF.
1: That's brilliant. Can I can I just ask? I'm glad you mentioned Martin and Felix because they they it's a great brand and they're doing great stuff. But it is sort of following Phil uh, Rouge a, a, a thread as you as you mentioned a little bit. But I know you also, you know, you've got people like um, Viani, and I know you 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 admire or you you, you have a great respect for Stephen Fossey as well, and um, or the Gribben Fossey. We had an evening once where you, you you were listening to Stephen going on about and and he was it was just awesome stuff he was talking about and you were there like thinking, lapping it up and thinking and selling him as brilliant ideas. I mean, how much of from these other guys do you get sort of influenced or, or or, not ideas, but um, you know, or or are you inspired by, by, by other people who are you, you know, who are the, who are your main inspirations? I suppose you'd say in the music, in the game. Um, Are there other brands that you look at more, Max?
2: Of course. I mean, look, at the end of the day, um, I think there's I don't know if it's actually Coco Chanel who wrote that but it's it's a quote I love. Uh she, it's, it's it's attributed to her saying he who insists on his creativity has no memory. <laughs> yeah. Meaning however wh- whatever you create as disruptive and crazy as it is has been inspired by something. There is no one who suddenly out of the blue comes out with an insanely new idea. Which didn't come from somewhere else. We are like we are like flowers, which have or, or plants which have grown because there was the soil and the water and the minerals seeping in, and and so then we can grow. So of course I'm inspired, and all I uh, all I love is getting blown away by one of one creator. It doesn't have to be even a, an independent. I'm super happy when big brands uh, innovate and, and amaze me. The last year was it last year when Patek came out with their um, uh, their weekly calendar where the, the font was actually drawn by hand. Yeah, the
3: steel travel,
2: Yeah, that was mind blowing. I remember I was having a uh, uh, dinner with Michael Tay the day before Basel Fair, Michael the owner of the Outlaws, and uh, an S T X, and he was showing me the piece, and I was like, whoa! And he didn't even under he hadn't even noticed that actually the font was actually drawn by hand. I was like. I should have had that idea. If there is one person in this galaxy who should have had an idea of writing by hand your font, it should have been me. And wow, well done, Cherry Stern, well done, Patek. So of course you get you get into I mean the Moser guys. Yeah. One of the many reasons of doing that collaboration with them is that I am so impressed by what they've done with the brand, taking it from a very conservative super conservative uh, round watch brand into making it amazing, innovative, cool, while remaining classic. That is so difficult. And um, and so that's one of the many reasons I, I approached uh, Edward like two and a half years ago, going, could I sort of borrow your Fume dials and concept? And I've got a few ideas. And that's when he, because he's amazing, he really is. And he looked at me and said, Okay, but you have to do something for me. I'm like what? What do you mean? He said, "Yeah, it's unfair. You get my fumet dials. What do I get?" I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, and uh, and we started off like that. And so that that's how, over a lunch at Dubai Watch Week, uh, eating a sandwich, the whole idea started. Uh, so um, yes, I do get inspired. I mean, there's some seminal pieces in the history of watchmaking, which are. Have, have probably defined who I am. I started off with the Vianney Halter Antiqua in 98, which blew my mind. Uh, the Urwerk 103, The, the Freak mm. from uh, from Ulysse Nardin. Uh, of course, we have to say, even though he's, he's not considered independent anymore, uh, uh, RM01. I mean, RM01 was an alien when it came out. And um, and so all these pieces which, which were so different in those days. And I was... I, Uruk 103 came out when I was doing Opus 3 with Vianney. It's the same year. And, um, and so, yeah, some so synchronicity up in the air. Uh, it was an incredible era. But, you know, there's some incredible, less extreme creations in the end of the 60s and early 70s. I find early 70s, mid-70s watches have some incredible ideas because quartz had arrived. And suddenly it was not about being functional, but we were finally allowed, as an industry, to be cool and creative, because something which was very serious could be less serious. And now we're all looking at these '70s crazy-looking watches, and we love them. But 15 years ago, you wouldn't want to be seen dead wearing them, and they would go for 20 bucks on eBay. So there are, there are, there is, there has been a lot of creativity in this industry.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think Moser is, is a prime example of that. Uh, I'm, I'm with you on that one, Max. Um, speaking of other brands, um, you created a fully new brand a couple of years ago, but you killed it before the launch because it would have meant not having enough time for uh, MBNF and your family. And similarly, you kept the number of watches um, you're producing at around 280 pieces back in 2013 because you felt it was the perfect size for the company. For someone who's so emotionally invested in his watches, do you sometimes wish you could put them on more wrists, maybe do something like your friend Stepan Sarpaneva did with his entry level brand SUF?
2: Oh, absolutely. And in, in the, 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 the few IG lives I've been doing these last months, and the, in the questions which have come over it's like, what, you, what do you regret? Uh, my, my one of my number one regrets as a creator is not to have been able to create a product. My social environment can wear.
3: Really? Oh wow!
2: I come from a simple family. Uh, my friends today are cannot ever buy an MBNF, and th- the value of an MBNF is hundred percent validated. I'm not saying it's too expensive. On the contrary, but the way we do our, our we create our pieces and the engineering and the and the, the manufacturing and the hand finishing and the quantities make it that way. So yes, I would love to create a, a product which is at a much lower price point. I as you said, I had created a brand which was circling around that, which was going to be like in the four thousand US dollar mm-hmm. segment. And um, and everything was there. And I, I pulled the plug in November 2018. Um, because exactly as you said, I, I realized I'm already not giving enough time to MBNF, I have the feeling at least, I'm not giving enough time to my family my my personal balance is more one of my biggest challenges as most people who've got a family and work right. and um, what am i doing am i just going that extra spoiled kid mile and doing this and i'm actually going to throw a spanner into something which was more or less working and uh, and so i took the decision to stop it um, i hope that one day in a different way we can resuscitate at least a couple of those ideas and, and, and launch them. Uh, it wouldn't be under the MB&F brand. It's impossible because MB&F is the symbol of insane engineering, insane hand finishing, uh, insane watchmaking. So you can't do that at three grand. It's impossible. Um, so it would have to be something else. But it, it's it's at the back of my mind. It is. Good to know.
3: We're looking forward to it.
1: I guess the HMX is as close as you get to, I mean, I forget the resale, resale and, and the, and the Prices, but it was a little lesser priced, wasn't it, Max?
2: It was thirty thousand, yeah, twenty nine thousand.
1: So that's as close you've got to a sort yeah. of a, a so called entry level. I mean, it's still out there. It's 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 an awesome piece, um, but I guess that's when you start playing around with different things. I mean, not all of them are going to be mega expensive, and it's just a really cool look you come up with and said, let's go with it anyway.
2: Well, it's also because I think over the the journey we've been developing, you can see that we, we started off with a few modular pieces, meaning using a base as a GP movement and that we're working on. All this we don't do anymore. So it's all integrated movements with these beautiful flying or non-flying balance wheels, insane hand finishing, hand engraving, all things that the first piece is probably, well, actually didn't have and that we've right. just gone up in, 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 in our prerequisites on what we accept under our brand. I don't see myself going back from that. I don't see I don't see me allowing myself to go down on my quality levels today.
3: Yeah, look, I, I can see where you're coming from there, obviously, with um having a high level brand like that and you know, still making sure a possible new brand has the same integrity and is still you must be must be a pretty difficult endeavor.
2: Well, I I love a new challenge, so don't worry, <laughs> something's gonna happen. <laughs> Good stuff.
3: <laughs>
0: you heard it here first, folks.
3: I'm just curious because uh, I was talking to some of the guys from the Melbourne Watch Community this week about having you on, and they were all so curious as to what your personal collection looks like, Max. So, what what is in your watch box? Watch box story?
2: Huh. Um, I'm a watch addict. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. Yes. One of the many big issues of our industry today is that not many watch addicts in key positions in big brands. And so the people actually making decisions don't actually love or buy watches that's very true and um and so i uh, for me it's a prerequisite if you're going to be a uh, um it's i think i've got there's a three-pronged approach to what i what i i collect there is of course uh i've i've managed to collect one of each of our what we'll call our icons what are the, the pillars of our industry today and, uh, of course, uh, vintage Rolexes and a Royal Oak and a Nautilus and a Reverso and a Panerai and you name it. I mean, like, I needed to have one of each. I didn't need multiples, except I must admit I've got many more Rolexes. And, um, and uh, then, <laughs> then, of course, what makes my heartbeat is the pieces from independent watchmakers who are my friends and I love and I admire, not because they're my friends, because I know what they've gone through. I know that every single one of that, those persons had the hardship they've gone through, and some have actually failed, um, to, to go to the end of their dream. So when you were, you're talking about a marine a Sopreneva, a Norwerk, a Wojtyn Leinen, a, a, even an Alan Silberstein, et cetera, et cetera, you not only have an incredible piece of creativity on your wrist, you have the soul of the creator who's put everything in. And every single one of those guys didn't create watches because they thought it was a business. They didn't do what they did because they thought there was any money to be had. They did it because it was their calling. And some failed and most have gone through insane hardship. And um, and they continued. So you've got a piece of humanity, of soul on your wrist. So that, that's very important for me. That, that's the second and the third is vintage quirky watches. Um, I just missed there was a Sotheby's auction uh, this week last week there was there had a Sotheby's pocket watch auction I didn't, you don't know if you saw that one there was some I bid on a few and missed everything but there was a Continental one called a Continental it was called Continental with like six time zones on one side and with all different fonts and on the other side there was like a a beautiful enamel of a boat uh, with a thermometer on it. It was so weird, so crazy that I definitely needed that because it's the guy who created that pocket watch in 1790 must be like the Urwerk of MBNF of that time, sort of thing. He must, people must have been looking at him going,
0: He was the Max Busser of then. That's right.
2: Exactly. Uh, who the fuck is he about? <laughs> and, uh, and so, and so. It was it was really amazing. So that that's those are the pieces I'll you know the last piece I just bought? Zenith Future Time Command. Does any of you know what a Zenith Future Time Command I've is? I've seen this one, yes. Okay, 1972. Google it. You're gonna see that it's if Zenith, and I've told Julien Tornard this, if Je- Zenith comes out with that piece today, it would be considered modernistic and futuristic. And it was designed in 72, that was a quartz watch. It could very easily make it into mechanical. And the design is incredible. And when I stumbled onto that, I was like, I need this. I paid 750 pounds on eBay for that watch. And it's incredible. Uh, What else did I just get myself? I got a 1968 Omega Chronos. Oh, they're great. With an incredible design. Awesome. Uh, For a song, song, you can get some incredibly innovative, great product, $500 to $2,000. But of course, we're not talking of the great brands and the great icons. We're talking of something which was different. And I love different.
0: Well, as you were saying, I mean, those watches sort of came out when the the Swiss watch industry, mechanical industry, was thrashing around in the you know in the panic of the quartz crisis you sort of almost you don't wish a crisis on anybody but you sort of almost wish for a bit of crisis to well even more crisis to happen now to spur a bit of creativity because all we seem to be seeing at the moment unfortunately is these sort of vintage re-editions you know a, a yet another dial with Fotina I mean at least that's how I see it <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: now we've just gone through a massive crisis it was a hopefully a short one but do you think that's going to kickstart some creativity in the big boys
0: Honestly, no, no. I don't think so. But that was something I sort of had in mind to sort of ask you. I've said this on the podcast before when we were talking about who in the industry is the best at communicating about watchmaking and I'd mentioned your name as you are the best communicator about watchmaking not your own watches necessarily but actually just the beauty and the glory and the importance of traditional watchmaking you know as exemplified by your LM thank you if we could give you a challenge as the best communicator about watches could you sell us a brand new watch that's out there now from one of the main brands you know how would you go about it not an indie but just let's say pick a brand that you think how would you go about it how could you sell us a modern watch? What would you say?
2: It's the one thing which is crucial for me is whatever I say comes from my heart. I will only defend what I believe in. And and I can be extremely vocal against what drives me crazy. And that's why people like to invite me on their shows uh, because I am a person who can say very unpolitically correct stuff. Um, so it's, it's. It will be. I, I can't. I can't sell you something I don't believe in. But I just gave you a great, uh, a great point of, of that beautiful uh, weekly calendar from Patek in steel. I thought it was a great price, beautiful design, wonderful font. Honestly, Patek movements beautifully finished. It's great, a great product. Um, that's a watch I, I would I would own and I would I would sell with pride. Um, there are a lot of others which will be more complicated. There's also been an inflation of prices over the years, which uh, is undefendable, uh, where an industrial product is sold at the price of a hand-finished artisan product. Mm. But then again, um, when most watch buyers unfortunately don't take the time or don't have the energy or don't have the contacts to educate themselves, well, then then they will be buying that stuff. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying <laughs> that if you've done a bit of education, you probably would be a little bit more wary of what you're buying. You said that
3: you only have two talents, that you think differently from people and you have the ability to gather great people to work with you. Can you think of one watchmaker, designer or engineer you mm-hmm. would love to collab- collaborate with one day?
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I would um, I would love to do something with Stephen Forsyth. Um, it's just that whatever they do is, is so highly priced. I'm not saying it's not worth it, but I, I'm just so scared. <laughs> and um, there is one person I've said it recently I would love to work with again. But that's more on historical reasons, is uh, François Jaune. Sure. Because uh, next year it'll be the 20th anniversary of Opus 1. Mm-hmm, yeah. And when I remember how we developed that together and, and the stories behind it, it was good fun. And then we had our ups and downs, uh, don't get me wrong. I mean... François-Paul wasn't an easy person already twenty years ago, but he was already incredibly talented. <laughs> and, um, and so, um, it's—I uh, would love to, to work with francois And uh, and actually, and I know I've been—I've been saying to everybody in the last interviews, I would love to design an Atmos.
3: Oh yes, please.
0: Oh, that would be amazing. That's on my bucket list.
2: Yes, I would love to design an Atmos uh, after all my crazy Le Pei clocks, and I love the guys at Le Pei, I love them dearly. They're incredible. But because I started my, my life, my professional life at Jaeger, I think an Atmos, a, a wacky, crazy Atmos designed by me would be fun.
0: Oh, you could start the waiting list now. I'll put my name down sight unseen. Second. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. Have there been kind of near misses or never happens that you could tell us about, you know, Mm -hmm. that you were free to talk about, you know, somebody that you tried to work with and it just didn't happen and it might not happen now? Yes.
2: Um, A lot of people come back to me and say, um, so in all your your lineup of of pieces, you're missing two calibres. I love the fact that why should I be missing anything, by the way? But anyway, that's the way people think. Mm. You're missing a chronograph and you're missing a uh, a minute repeater. For the chronograph... Give me a little of time, a little time. Something amazing is in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but the minute repeater, we did start a project with, uh, with a partner who's, who had the knowledge because we've got three engineers in-house. We've developed now virtually 90% of all our calibres in-house, um, except when we don't have the knowledge. Like typically, the, the, the Sunderdome had to be with Eric Coudray. Um, so the minute repeater, I had to find somebody. And unfortunately, it didn't materialize. Uh, for many reasons. And uh, so that would be, uh, I would love to. I've got a lot of ideas on, on minute repeaters, but there are not that many companies, artisans, engineers who actually manage, or who really manage Mitri's uh, uh, master, master that. And I will never take the risk of doing it myself because these people have been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years and they have perfected an art. If we start on our own, we will never come to the level of what they've managed, however great our ideas are. And uh, and so, yeah, there's, that, that's something which hasn't happened, which I, I regret, but it'll happen. It was not meant to be. Like my mum, my mum was a Zoroastrian, uh, would say it was like, it was not meant to be.
0: Oh, maybe you can collaborate with uh, Mr. Hagman, maybe borrow him from Rex for a little while.
2: Definitely. But I mean, now we're talking the movement. I mean, of course, for the case, yes. But, uh, and uh, look chap is doing an incredible job i mean he is he's flying i mean he deserves all the kudos he's
1: so so max as much as not having to have such and such a movement or such and such a movement in the lineup and not really going along those lines you're saying a chrono might be in the offing later on can we can we, we we're all big habering fans over here we've got i've got one we've got a couple of the guys i've got them um in our, in our, in our, in our crew um richard Habring, great guy you know him of course, I know
2: Richard and Maria very well. Um, no, not with them. Uh, we're developing a chrono which will be something I think nobody's ever seen. Wow. And, uh, and But give us a few more years because this is, this is a typical five-year project. So uh, we're in the middle of it. It's incredibly frustrating. Uh, so you, you have an idea one day, you wake up one day and you say, oh, wouldn't it be cool if? <laughs> and then you have to wait five years. <laughs>
0: like, Oh, it's terrible. So, so let me ask you, Max. So, w- when you wake up with that idea and you, you know, you ring your, you know, whoever, Eric, Giroux, and say, "Hey, I have an idea." Do they do an I? Do they go, "Yes, Max has got another idea," or do they go, "Oh no, he's had another idea." God, it's going to be sleepless nights again. <laughs> <laughs> which way do
2: they go? Uh, it depends in which state of their life or their day they are. Right. Um, like every, all of us, because initially when I started MBNF, um, every time I had a new concept, I could see, and every artisan we worked with and, and supplier, I would go and see them and like, okay, now the sapphire glass has to be like that. And you could look at them saying, you're joking, right? There's no way we can do that. And uh, I, I remember when we started with the, the first sapphire manufacturer working with, them, we did the HM2SV, which was, had a whole half block of sapphire on the top. Wow. And the guys looked at me and said, it's impossible, because in those days, Sapphire manufacturers only made round or square glass, uh, which were a little bit dome or not. They couldn't even make a box, uh, what you call a box uh, glass today. Remember, Speedmasters were still in, in Plexi mm. in those days. And, uh, so nobody could make actually even that. So you would arrive, I'd arrive, but HM2 and then HM3, the, the, the frog uh, and the domes, and then the HM4, the whole middle part, which... 180 hours of <laughs> to do and, um, and they would just look at me like no you're joking and this has changed this has changed because I think because they've managed to overcome each challenge we've given them it becomes also an addiction mm. it's like okay Max what's new? What are you bringing for us this time? Because you have to realize that at the end of the day however much they're going to charge us and don't worry they charge us it's it's, been, it's not with us that the people we work with live, where we'll maybe be at the highest 20% of their yearly revenue. Sure. So um, we're, we're, we're their crazy, wacky, expensive mistress. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're, we're the guys, we're like, when we arrive, they're like, ah, oh, this changes from our normal, boring, usual life. Uh, it's going to be complicated. We're going to pull our hair out, but this is going to be fun.
0: Yeah, cancel our lunch, hold the phone, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, look, I think we should start sort of wrapping up. I mean, Max, we could keep you on on the phone for hours, but I'm sure you've got more exciting things to do.
2: It's been a great interview, guys. Thank you.
0: Um, What we try to do is we sort of, we usually ask our guests and ourselves to sort of uh, for people to follow, for a recommendation to follow on Instagram, uh, more for us as the community to kind of expand and discover new people, discover new concepts. Would you like to go first, Max, if you've got somebody for us? Sure, sure. Um, I'm not going to be in the watchmaking world. I think
2: there's so much out there. Um, no, I um, there's three accounts I, I love. Um, uh, which one is if you're into uh, 40s, 50s, 60s uh, architecture, is um, a gentle a gentleman called D C underscore Hillier, H I double and he's got this incredible Instagram account where I every post he puts, I'm like, I want that house. I want that TV set. Uh, he's got incredible taste. At least my taste. I'm sorry. He links to my taste. And uh, he, he does an incredible job. Um, second, to look at at any time of your, your life, especially when you have kids, because you're trying to explain them what life was, there's an account called Historical Pigs, P-I-X, in one word, historical pics. And all these incredible photos of 20, 50, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, of moments in time where you sort of understand what life used to be. And uh, I I, I could spend hours on it. And uh, and the third, if you're a petrol head, car guy, there's a guy maybe you already know of him. His name is Ted Gushu. Yes. And uh, Ted does these incredible photos. He goes around the world uh, as, a, as a basically a car journalist, uh, taking photos of incredible vintage cars or sometimes modern cars. And uh, he's, uh, so Ted Gushu is G-U-S-H-U-E. And um, those three accounts are not to miss for me. Max had three. How did he get three accounts? <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's a very special guest Rob. Well done. No, it's good. They're great. Great ones to follow.
0: No, those are fantastic. Thanks, Max. JP, did you want to go next?
3: Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I got a chap called Watchful underscore Waiting. And uh, yeah, he's a collector with uh, a phenomenal collection. He's got uh, an FP Jorn, I think Chronomet uh, um, Souverain. He's got a Stova. He's got a Lange 1 and some of the like, great pieces. Takes great shots as well. So uh, definitely an account to, to go follow watchful underscore waiting. Okay,
1: just followed him. Rob? I just have a one that I've, I'm not sure if I've spoken about him before. There's a guy in Switzerland, Max knows him, Marco Gabella. Mm-hmm. He, he does, I won't say who he works for, what he does, but I mean, he's a watch guy. Plus, he's into art and art deco stuff and uh, some really cool art, basically. It's M-A-R-C-O-G-A-B-E-L-L-A. He's a good friend of mine, surely of Max's. Um, he just has... Some stylish shots. Some of them just pretty arty. Um, he has some really cool works of art in his house, and he's a bit of an artist himself. has a bit of a stab at it, you know. Got some, got some, got some canvases going usually in his house. Good guy. Doesn't take himself too seriously, but um, has really good taste, basically in watches and art. Uh, go and
3: follow Marco. That's all I'm going to say. Very nice.
0: Yeah, very cool. No, that's brilliant. Beautiful. And I've got a local watch uh, collect a guy crunchy latte yes. you guys may may know may know him name is Furman, crunchy latte or one word he's got some really cool indies uh um so yeah, that's that's really he's really cool. and also like a lovely guy as well to interact with so yeah that's that's really good beautiful well look i think we'll wrap up that's that's an amazing episode once again thank you to everybody for joining us for today uh, and many many thanks to max of course for speaking with us
2: thank you max great pleasure Thank you very much. The insightful questions you made me think. And uh, and thank you for doing all that research, JP. I was impressed. because.
3: <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that.
2: So you're the stalker. Ah. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, guys. I'll,
3: I'll take that as a compliment.
0: Definitely. Many sleepless nights went into this, Max. Many sleepless nights. But look, I think that's a, uh, I think what I, what I really think this conversation shows is, Max, your passion, your integrity, and your enthusiasm really shines through and i think that we talked about that thread that's connected all your fantastic and incredible um pieces and you know products that you've made uh projects that you've undertaken abnf and it really shows the man behind the name i think and i really can't thank you enough for joining us today i think it's been a fantastic conversation
2: well likewise and um we can even continue at another time if you wish there's so many more stories after 30 years happy to happy to go back into memory lane so thank you again guys
1: brilliant
0: thanks max thank you you might regret this one day but we've got it on tape <laughs> thanks max it's a pleasure <laughs> thanks again thanks everyone for tuning in for today's episode fifth wrist was set up as a platform by enthusiasts and for enthusiasts if you want to join us contribute, write reviews or even come on the podcast, please get in touch. Follow Fifth Wrist on Facebook and Instagram or on our website, fifthwrist.com. Please like and subscribe to the Fifth Wrist podcast and leave us a review. It helps to spread the word. Follow me at Times Roman AU. JP is at JP underscore Melbs. Rob is at Geneva underscore Blue underscore And of course, our guest Max at Max Buser. The Fifth Wrist crew can be found at Fifth Wrist. Many, many thanks again. And everyone, stay on time. the community for the community. We would love you to join the crew via our group chat on Slack. Email us at contact at and join the movement.